The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we'll be today. We've been walking through this book together, and uh, we'll continue to walk through this book. We'll take a Sunday off from the book, or maybe a couple Sundays off, uh, starting next Sunday as we kind of... uh, look at Christmas together, and then we'll jump right back in after the first of the year. Uh, let me give you a disclaimer. The book of 1 Corinthians is about to, um, about to get hard. It's about to get um, fast, okay? Um, and I want to go ahead and give you at least a couple of weeks warning that um, there's going to be some things that we discuss that uh, parents, you may want to take into consideration uh, before bringing your, your kids um, you know, in we, we want you to be able to do that, but, uh, but I just want to give that disclaimer uh, because of what's, what's coming up, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now go read it, and, uh, and you make the decision on your own as parents, but, uh, but that's where we're heading. But today, we'll continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. Let me ask a question as before I read this, the text. Have you ever been humbled? Amen. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's not so fun, is it? Uh, several years ago, I remember being in the backyard at my mother-in-law's house, uh, probably around the holidays, and, uh, and being out there, and we were all in the backyard, and Lana's little sister uh, looked at me, and she was thinking, you know, you're six foot three. I don't, know what, I don't know what moved her to ask me this question. She said, can you jump that fence? The pride in me welled up. I said, yeah, I can jump that fence. That fence is no problem. It was probably a four-foot four tall fence. You know, I thought, no problem. Do it, she said. <laughs> well, I don't need to show you that I can, I can jump that fence. Why do I need to prove it to you? She said, if you can jump that fence, then do it. Well, what was I going to do? Let my wife's little sister show me up? So I Stepped back from this fence. I sized it up. I thought, it's no problem. I should be able to do this. As I ran and as I launched to go over this fence, I forgot that I was wearing lace-up shoes, which got snagged on the fence, on the chain link on the way up, which left me precariously dangling on the other side of the fence. To which I thought, my wife will come running thinking, we got to rescue him. He's in trouble. Let's help him. But instead, I looked over, and my wife and all of her family were just laughing. I think even my kids were standing around laughing. That is not a good place to be. Uh, at least it was my shoelace and not my pants, right? Well, sometimes, sometimes we're humbled with things that are comical, things that are funny that we can get over that you, you, in, my, in your mind you think, well, you know, hey, you're going to have your turn too. I will dare you to something, and when you fail, I will laugh at you, you know? But sometimes things humble us in other ways, in ways that are not laughable, they're not comedic, they're not as easy to get over. Friday was one of those days. When, when news coverage began about this massacre, this act of evil, this murderous rampage that was committed by this 20-year-old man uh, in Newtown, Connecticut. As I watched this come in, I probably did what many of you did. 
my heart just sank. It just went into my stomach. I was just humbled that these, these kids, these innocent kids, these uh, six-year-old, seven-year-old kids were just senselessly, brutally murdered for no apparent reason. They're still trying to, trying to put a motive on this. And I began to think about, God, just help us. God, help them. And I remember thinking for a second, you know, all the things that I sometimes think are so important in an instant like that or not. And I look out at, at teachers that serve in our schools, in our community, and I just want to say to you, just thank you for what you do and, uh, and that we're praying for you. We, we say we're praying for you, but I think now we pray for you all the more. You know, some things humble us in that way. Today, our, our text of Scripture looks at this issue of pride and humility. And what are the things that are really important and what are the things that are not? And where are we in the scope of things? And how, how does God view what's going on? Let's look at our text together and we'll pick this apart. Beginning in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I want to break this text down into three different parts this morning. First, I want to ask this question, why do we need the counsel of Scripture? Why do we need the parameters of Scripture? And then secondly, I simply want to make two points out of that. That pride lies, but humility dies. Okay, so let's look at this first. Why do we need the counsel of Scripture? Paul says in verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So he gives us a clue as to what he's doing, why he's writing this. For your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written. Paul warns them not to go beyond what is written. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. This is a phrase in Scripture that we're, we're kind of puzzled by. What does he mean by this? As you, some commentators say that this is simply an idiom. And it's, a, it's a phrase that was used in, in the popular culture of the day, and everyone sort of knew what it meant. They would say, hey, man, don't go beyond what's written. It, it would be similar to us saying something like, 
Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, at that point, nobody begins to look for a baby. We understand that it's an idiom, that we're, we're speaking slang for saying, hey, there's, there's not anything wrong with the whole system but this one part. So maybe that's what this is, but more than likely, this goes beyond just an idiom, and Paul is writing about what he's already said. He's summing up what he has said so far in how he has quoted the Old Testament. When Paul, I believe, when he writes this and says, don't go beyond what is written, he's talking about what he's already said in this letter to them, specifically those quotations from the Old Testament. He's quoted the Old Testament five times already. In the first three chapters of this book, he has quoted the Old Testament five times. In chapter 1, verse 19, he quotes Isaiah 29, 14. For it is written, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In chapter 1, verse 31, he quotes Jeremiah when he says, As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 9, he quotes Isaiah 64 when he says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In chapter 3, verse 19, he quotes Job chapter 5. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. In chapter 3, verse 20, he quotes Psalm 94, 11 when he says, And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So what's Paul's point? Why is he pointing backwards to these Old Testament quotations and saying, I've applied all these things that I'm saying to to me and Apollos so that you will learn not to go beyond what is written? Well, Paul's point is simply this, that he wants them to understand that the only reason we know God at all is because God has revealed himself to us in the pages of Scripture. We wouldn't know God otherwise. We might know that there is a God, but we would not know Him. Paul wants them to remember this. And this is important for us for at least two reasons. There are more, but these are the two that, as I just thought through this, I think are extremely applicable to us. One is this, that if we are going to know God at all, we will find Him in His Word. We will find Him as He has revealed Himself there. There is not more than one way to God. There is not more than one name for God. He's revealed himself as Yahweh, as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's revealed himself there. And if we're going to know him at all, it will be because we see in the pages of Scripture who he is. God has given and preserved the gospel in written form for a few thousand years for a reason. Not for us, these thousands of years later, to claim that we are enlightened to the point where we can now write into God's existence and define Him. It's not up to us to define Him. He has defined Himself. The second reason this is important, why Paul doesn't want them to go beyond what is written, is because God has revealed all that is necessary for us to know about him there. We, we talk about the uh, authority of Scripture, but one, sometimes we leave out the sufficiency of Scripture. That Scripture itself, as it is written, is sufficient. That God knows what he's doing when he wrote this book. That what we need to know, he's given us. This is why Paul writes to 1 Timothy, 
or, or to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. We don't need to make speculations about who God is or what he is like or what he might possibly be or how he might also reveal himself beyond what's written there. What we need to do is take the word of God at face value and believe it. Paul says, I want you to know that you don't need to go beyond what is written. Scripture is not only authoritative, it is sufficient. It is true and it is enough. Second Peter chapter 1, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. This is important. Why is this so important? Well, that is summed up in the rest of verse 6, where Paul says, I have applied all these things to Myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, so that you might learn not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Because wasn't this what they were doing? They were lining up behind their favorite teacher. They were becoming arrogant and saying, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. And what Paul wants them to know, that going beyond the pages of Scripture, going beyond the teachings of Scripture, leads us to become arrogant and puffed up. The word is the same word that we would use for hot air filling a balloon. To chase after things that are vain and that are shallow and that are pointless. Don't ever follow a man who stands in this pulpit blindly if he's not leading you to Christ. God has placed me here to pastor, to shepherd, to elder you. But only as I serve under him. Why is this important? Why is is Paul making this case? And some say, well, maybe that's that's a minor issue in this larger text. I don't think so. I think, it's, I think it's where he's coming from with the rest of the text. He's coming from this that don't go beyond what's written in Scripture because if you do, you're going to be puffed up. And here's what he says. Pride lies. Verses 6 through 8, watch. Pride tells us that we are unique, that we are special, that we are praiseworthy. And that's what Paul is attacking with the three questions that he asks. He says... Or who sees anything different in you? Isn't that a good question? Wouldn't we serve ourselves well to ask ourselves that question sometimes? Because sometimes we think, well, that may apply to them, but I'm different. I'm unique. Like, like the man I worked with when I was 18 years old who said that him having sex with a woman who was not his wife might be the, the rule or the law for others, but God knew how he was and God made an exception for him. Paul says, who sees anything different in you? Sometimes we think that we are special. And, and I would challenge you today, name for me the, the, the last 10 teams who have won the Super Bowl. Name for me all of the U.S. Presidents. Think about those things. And in that moment, that person is unique and special. And we celebrate them and we put them on TV and confetti falls from the the sky. 
But in just a short matter of time, they're forgotten and gone. And Paul looks at these Corinthians who are, who are not just lining up behind their favorite teacher. They're lining up against him. Don't miss that. They're lining up against him. And he says, who sees anything different in you? Second question, what do you have that you did not receive? Now think that through. What do you have that you did not receive? I have nothing that I did not receive. I have nothing that I did not receive. David says this when he's praying, leading the people of God to pray in 1 Chronicles 29 verse 14. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given back to you. And this is what we say to you every Sunday before we collect the offering is, look, you're not giving something that, that is yours back to God or, or to God. What you're doing is you're taking what He has already given to you and saying, God, you are the giver of all good gifts. You are the sustainer of my life. God, you're, you are preeminent. I am not. God, take back a portion of what you've given to me. And Paul's third question, he says, If then you have received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I've used this illustration before, but right now with, with the Los Angeles Lakers and Dwight Howard and I don't know if you've been following that at all. The man is, I don't know how tall he is. He can get up and dunk and block a shot. And he can, he can slam a ball through a, a, a goal. And he can celebrate that. And like, like Shaquille O'Neal used to do, he would jump up and, and slam a ball. He's seven feet something tall. And he slams a ball. And, and he just runs back down the court. Oh, you know, just celebrating that. But he couldn't make a free throw. He was celebrating that he was tall. Who made him tall? I mean, did, he, did Dwight Howard or Shaquille O'Neal or, or any of those basketball players, when they were young, do what Barney Fife did and hang from the, the bar in the closet trying to make themselves taller? No. Did they, did they, did they eat special meals? Did they lay down every night and have, have a, a special apparatus that would stretch them and make them taller? No. They simply did what kids do. They play. They go to school. They live. They come home and, and have their parents. They stand up against the wall, and the parent takes a little pencil and marks it and puts a date by it. And, you know, most kids stop here, but Shaquille O'Neal just kept going, you know, just way up here. Imagine that wall. It's like, hey, we got to stop because we hit the, 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 you know, the top of the door. Imagine a beauty queen celebrating that she's pretty. And she, she can paint everything up. She can diet and all this kind of stuff. But there's a certain level of that that's been given to her that she has no power over. And this is Paul's point. If then you received everything that you have, then why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? In a culture that celebrates mediocrity and seeks to put self first, we would do well to ask ourselves these questions regularly. Why do I think I'm different or special? What do I have that I have not received? And those things that I have received, why do I treat them like I had anything to do with them in the first place? If I'm going to boast, let me boast in Christ alone. We would be forced, if we ask ourselves regularly these questions, we would be forced to see that there is only one that is preeminent, and it's not us. 
that Christ alone deserves all of the worship and the praise of all of the universe. Not only does pride lie and tell us that we are unique and special and that we are praiseworthy, but it also tells us that we've already arrived. That we've, we've already made it. We're already there. That's what he says. Already, you have all you want. He's being sarcastic with them. Already, you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. Pride lies and tells us that, if, that, that we're, where we are at in life is as good as it gets. It tells us to be comfortable with our present state. It blinds us to our sinfulness and our need of sanctification. I want you to get this picture. Imagine with me someone thinking, we talk in this language, that you've arrived, that you've already gotten there. Imagine with me riding down the road, you're driving the car, and the passenger with you, you know, he just has this mindset. You've not arrived at your destination. You're still driving down the road, and he all of a sudden turns, opens the door, and gets out. Has he arrived? Well, in one way, he did, yes. He arrived to the pavement and rolled. Sometimes we treat our sanctification this way. We, we come into the car of the church, and then we think, hey, I can get out wherever. I'm here. This is all there is. I have arrived. And Paul says, you are not already. In one sense, you are already rich. You are rich in Christ. In one sense, you are already a king because there is one who is on the throne and he's coming back, but he's not come back yet. He wants them to see that pride will tell you that you're already there, but comfortable, ignore your sin. Hey, everybody has issues. Instead of letting it push us to humble ourselves and discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, Paul himself said, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Pride will tell you that you have made it, that you are special, that you are unique, that you are praiseworthy, that there is nothing left for you to do. Everyone ought to just, just man, just worship the ground that you walk on. But pride lies. Don't ever forget that pride lies. And Paul holds this mirror up to the Corinthians and shows them this ugly reality of the pride in their lives. They saw themselves as unique and special and praiseworthy having arrived. And they also saw Paul as ordinary, contemptible, and having a long way to go. And Paul will point to the very things that they were despising in him as the marks of true Christ-following, true spirituality. And he will tell them that humility dies. Look at verses 9 through 13. Actually, beginning in the last part of 8, he says, And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. And this is where he transitions to contrasting their pride with the humility of the apostles. He's showing there's a difference here. You've already made it. You're already a king. And man, I wish you did, because maybe then we could get on with you. But not, actually, they didn't. But they were deceived and thought they did. 
For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Notice there two particular words. He has exhibited us, and he has made us a spectacle to the world. There's a sense in which God put the apostles on display so that the world in the end would watch and see how the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And Paul knew this. Paul knew that God was using his life as theater for the world to watch the plan of God play out. Paul understood that he wasn't the main character on the stage, but he was an extra supporting the main character of God. It's God's story. It's not our story. This, when he says this, that, that we have been put on exhibit, last of all, as men condemned to die, this is a very clear reference to the Roman Colosseum. If you know anything about the Roman Colosseum and the, the gladiator games that would go on in that place, men who were condemned to die, who had been found guilty and condemned to die, they were made to be gladiators. They were made to go into the Colosseum and fight to their death while the city sat in the seats and watched this as sport and entertainment. Some of them weren't given the, uh, the luxury of, of a sword or anything to fight with. They were simply thrown into wild beasts. A Roman general would celebrate a victory when he came back. If he had gone into battle and he had conquered a... a, a um, a foreign country or territory, he would bring back those that were conquered and they would celebrate by having a parade. And he would come back through the streets and he would lead this parade at the applause of the people. And his generals and officers and his soldiers would follow after him. And then behind them would be the king of the conquered country and his officers and his soldiers all in chains. And they weren't simply being led through the streets to be paraded as those who had been conquered. They were being led to the Colosseum, saved as last of all men condemned to death. They were the finale of the show. Up to this point, maybe it was common criminals and thugs that had been condemned to die, and they led the show, and, and the people would sit in the stands, and they would watch these men die, but they knew there was coming the finale. Those that couldn't get seats in the Colosseum would cheer as they walked through those streets. And when they would enter into the Colosseum, there was no hope of them ever coming out. This is not a Russell Crowe movie. This was real life. This was real world suffering and dying. And Paul understood this. He understood that God was putting his life and the life of the apostles on display by the way, this is not simply something that's for the apostles. It was also for every believer that we might also live this way. We may not have to go to the Colosseum, but we have an opportunity to die every day. He wants them to see that humility dies. That's why he writes in Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8.36, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is how he saw himself. This was the calling that he knew God had on his life. And this meant that he also had to die 
every single day. He must die. And I want to list some things out here, and I want, to, I want to show you what he had to die to, and let it be also application for us that we might also, by the glory and grace of our God, die to these things as well. Paul understood that he must die to being thought wise in the world's eyes. This is what he says in verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. He stood before King Agrippa, and Paul was a very educated man. He was upper crust. He knew a lot. He was very intelligent. And he stood before King Agrippa, and Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. The philosophers of the day called him a babbler, a seed picker. He was grasping at thoughts, but he never really had an original thought of his own. And nothing he said was of any value. And this was the life of Paul. Paul was on the ladder, climbing his way to the top of the religious society of the day. Could have been the most influential mind in all of Judaism in that first century. But God knocked him off his horse, blinded him, and called him to follow him. So he had to die to being thought wise in the world's eyes. He had to die to being seen as strong in the world's eyes. He says, we are weak, but you are strong. He had to die to being honored by his contemporaries. He says in in the last part of verse 10, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Paul had to die to worldly possessions. Verse 11 and 12, he says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. These were some of the things that they hated in Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes about it and celebrates it. Verses 24 through 28, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. He was whipped with that 39 lashes five different times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He suffered everywhere he went. It wasn't just the people on the outside, it was his own people. But he had this burning call in his life to serve the churches, to plant churches, to see that as many as possible came to be believers, came to know the one that he knew, that he had seen with his own eyes. Paul truly knew what Jesus meant when he said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Paul had to die to the natural inclinations of his flesh. He says in verse 12, When reviled, we bless. Do you always want to bless your enemies? You say, well, depends on what you mean by bless. Because I'll bless them out. It's not what Paul means. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. What is your natural inclination when you are undergoing persecution? It's to quit, right? It's not worth it. 
I'll just give it up. I'll just go somewhere else. I'll do something else. Paul said, when we're persecuted, and we're persecuted every single place we turn, we endure. When slandered, he says in verse 13, we entreat. Now, entreat is a word that means to give answer. When we're slandered, we want to give answer, don't we? But that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about defending himself. He's talking about defending the gospel. He has little to no concern for his own reputation. But if the gospel is in danger of being misunderstood, misapplied, or left completely for a false gospel, he will give answers so that it does not suffer. Where does he learn this? Does this sound like anybody else you know? He learns this from the example of Christ. who endured under persecution, who blessed when he was reviled, who entreated when he was slandered, but he wasn't defending himself. So many times he was silent before his slaughterers. Jesus said no to worldly possessions. He said no to being thought well of by his own culture and his contemporaries. He, he said no to being seen as strong in the world's eyes. If anybody could have seen, been seen as strong in the world's eyes, don't you think it would have been the creator of the universe? Don't you think it would have been the one that with a word spoke everything into existence? Think about the weakness that is controlled and displayed. Jesus said no to being thought wise in the world's eyes. He was considered to be a fool, a madman. If you don't believe me, just read Isaiah 53. Read the Gospels. Look at the life of Christ. Paul had to to die to being loved by the world. He says, and this is where I want to finish up, and this is where Paul finishes up. In the last part of 13, we have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul wants them to know that, hey, you don't like what I am, but guess what? That's who I've become by following Christ, and that's who I am to this day. So like it or leave it, this is what it means to follow Christ. These two phrases that Paul uses here, when he says we are, we've become, and we still are, the scum of the world, the scum of the world was a phrase that was used to talk about the dirt removed from taking a bath. Or what's left in the drain after you scrub the pots and pans. It's a disgusting image, isn't it? Nobody nobody picks that stuff up and recycles that. You don't take that little basket out of your kitchen sink and say, you know what, hey, there's still some good oatmeal in there. I think I'll just recycle that, you know. We'll just put that back in the pot. We want to be green and all. The refuse of all things is a reference to, it was a a phrase that they used to talk about when they would sweep the floor. It was the the dirt that was collected as they swept the floor. You ever swept your floor and looked down and said, man, we are disgusting people. I mean, there's pieces of skin and hair and food. And we just, you know, hey, we're going to lunch in a minute. I just, you know, want to make sure there's enough food down there for everybody. Paul says, look. This is who we are. We must die to being thought well of, to being loved by the world. And then he simply ends. He simply ends it there. There are no happy, happy, happy words to end this on. He simply ends it right there. 
Why? Because the Corinthians were taking the position of those in the seats of the Colosseum. They were watching the dishonored go to their deaths instead of following the example and command of Christ. And what Paul wants them to see is that we don't need to go beyond what is written because what is written is the Word of God, both in written form and in flesh. And Jesus himself said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Church, we need the Word of God because pride will lie. Pride will tell you things that aren't true about yourself and lead you to a Christless eternity, will lead you to hell. You may be sitting here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior, but pride is telling you, you don't need that. You've never done anything that bad. This stuff, they're following, man, they're deceived, they're fools. I can't believe I'm even here today. I just came because somebody wanted me to come to the meal. Look, pride will lie to you. And I would simply ask you this. What if you're wrong? What if, what if Scripture really is telling the truth? What if this book really is the Word of God? What if He really is coming again one day? What if you really do have to stand before Him? What will you say then? We must constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. Believers in this room, we must constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. Not only preaching the gospel, the, the, rehearsing the tenets of the gospel, but we must also repeatedly come back to this book, reading it for ourselves daily, pouring over it, saying, God, you are what I need. Put parameters on my life for my good and for your glory. Use my life for you, not for me. Help me not to live for this world and for my pleasures alone, but God, humbly make me die. Church, this is our calling. Let us die to sin and to self, knowing that our only, only hope is salvation in Christ alone through faith alone, by grace alone. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in this room, there are people with all sorts of mindsets that are being told many different things. Their flesh is speaking to them now. uh, Satan is trying to deceive them now and, and talk them out of things. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would Block all of that. That your voice would be louder than any. The truth of your word and your gospel, God, would would be the one voice that remains. God, would you tune out every other voice? And God, would you have your way among the people who are seated here, those that will listen even at a later date on the podcast? And God, would you build your church? Would you cause us to die? not to get right with you, 